Lord, we know that all things are under your control and there's nothing that enters our life that doesn't pass through your hands. And I pray that you'd help us to make us more fully aware of your, your control of life, Lord, even when it looks like it's out of control to us. Help us to go through life with your joy and your peace because we know who we belong to. Lord, for these things and many others unspoken this morning, but each one of us knows about, we entrust ourselves. And now this time to you in Jesus' name, amen. We're going to finish John 11 this morning. You remember for the last couple of weeks we've been in John and we looked at it. This will be three weeks on the same chapter, but the first week we were in John 11, it was this SOS that Mary and Martha sent up to Jesus. Their brother was sick, and they said, hey, would you come down and heal our brother? And Jesus' response was to sit tight for two weeks and let the sick man die so that he could raise a dead man from the grave instead of healing a sick man. Today, as we close chapter 11, we just look at the aftermath of Jesus having gone down, we looked at last week, and raised Lazarus from the grave. What came of that? The end of John 11 tells us. We're in John 11, verses 45 through 57. Many of the Jews who'd come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did, that is, raised Lazarus from the dead, put their faith in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the religious, ruling, political, social group in Israel. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many miraculous signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. Then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. One of them named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You don't realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. He didn't say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. This, by the way, follows Jesus' words in John 10 in which he had said the same thing. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the Jews. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the desert to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. No one's sure for sure, but Ephraim may be up around Bethel, north of Jerusalem, about 15 miles. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. They kept looking for Jesus, and as they stood in the temple area, they asked one another, What do you think? Isn't he coming to the feast at all? But the chief priests had given orders that if anyone found out where Jesus was, he should report it so that they might arrest him. Notice the difference. We're going to look at three issues in this passage, but just start with verses 45 and 46. Look at the difference in the response to the folks who all saw the same thing. They saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. And you've got these two very different responses. One response is many of the Jews who'd come to visit Mary and seen what Jesus did put their faith in him. I think New American Standard says believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So one portion of the group of people that's there, they all see the same thing. They see Jesus speak 
and Lazarus comes out from the grave, and you remember he's been there four days, so we know he's really, really dead. They see exactly the same thing. And one group believes, says, puts their faith in him, and the other group runs off to tell the Pharisees. Now, this means not only that they didn't believe, they didn't trust him, didn't put their faith in him. They're kind of like kids who are going to tell mom and dad what Junior did. They're going off to tell the Pharisees it's getting even worse, this guy that we don't believe in, this guy that we're opposed to. The question becomes, why did one group believe and the other group didn't? What was the difference between the people who all saw the same thing? What was the difference between the group, the people that saw and believed, and, and the people who saw the same thing and didn't believe? And not only in our story, but today, for you and I, when we interact with others, what's the difference between people who hear the truth about Christ and believe, and those who hear the same truth and don't believe? What's the difference between those two groups? The passage we're in this morning has some helpful insight into this issue. It certainly is not the first or last word on it. We're looking at a part of this, so it's not the whole story, but it's a significant part of it. And we're going to look at the Pharisees, excuse me, and the chief priests as an example of those folks who don't believe because they don't want to believe. Some people don't believe, and you'd say the bottom line is because they don't want to. They see, the, they see the same thing, they hear the evidence, they don't want to believe. Look at verse 47 and 48. In 47, this group says, here is this man performing many miraculous signs. Now, the issue in their mind is not that he's a huckster and he's fooling people. It's not that he's pulling off these great magic tricks. It's not that they think that he's not really doing what he appears to be doing. That would be one thing. But they say he's performing miraculous signs, signs of power, attesting miracles, depending on the version you read. He really is performing miracles. This is what they say. And their response is, and what are we going to do about it? It's not, is it credible? Is it legitimate? It's not, should we believe? Should we not believe? It's that, what are we going to do to stop this guy? He's performing signs of miracles. They don't believe in him. And their thinking goes like this. If you say, why do they care? What, what's in it for them or not in it for them to believe or not believe? Their thinking goes like this. He's performing these miracles, so people are believing in him. And with Lazarus here, this has gotten even worse, and it's close to home. This is down in Jerusalem area, remember. So many more people are believing in him. And then the thought goes like this. This is not said, but this is what they think. As people come to believe in him as the Messiah, which you remember when Mary and Martha interact with Jesus, they say, we know you're the Messiah. And for Israelites, remember, the Messiah was their deliverer. So the Pharisees think, the Sanhedrin, the religious and political leaders, assume this. If people believe in Jesus as the Messiah, there will be an uprising. And we know what the Roman military is capable of. And if we have an uprising, the Romans will destroy the temple, the nation, and and us. So their predisposition to Jesus and to the miracles and to even to raising from the dead isn't, is it credible? It's not, is this true or not true? And, And therefore, how do we respond to it? It's that we don't care if it's true or not. We don't want to believe, we don't want to trust because we don't like the repercussions of where this would lead. We assume that even if Jesus is the Messiah, this is ludicrous, even if he's the Messiah, 
We'd like to get rid of them because we're afraid we're going to lose our nation and our place. And remember, these are the religious leaders. This is crazy, isn't it? These are the religious leaders overseeing the temple, ostensibly for God, serving God. And they say, essentially, even if God, the God we say we worship, has sent his Messiah, we've got to get rid of him because it goes against our plan for our life. A significant reason why the Jewish leaders didn't believe in Jesus was because they didn't want to. Have you guys ever had a conversation with someone where uh, you share the gospel and a person, uh, their response is a series of questions or statements that makes it sound like they have these uh, philosophically astute, questions or these academic reasons why the gospel or Jesus doesn't sound like it's true. And the further you go in the conversation to either answer objections or to pose your own questions, the further you go with it, maybe at the end they finally admit they don't believe because they don't want to. I had a conversation years ago with a guy, nice guy, about Christ and the Gospels and his claims. And it started like that. But this was an honest guy. And so in the end, he said, look, this is the deal. I want to sleep around. He was, he was in college. He was going to KU. Come to think of it, I was at Lawrence yesterday at the KU Relays. And he was going to school at KU. And, and his bottom line was, I want to sleep around. And if I trust Jesus, that may not be the option for me that I'd like it to be. So that was the bottom line. He was honest enough to say that. Sometimes when you interact with people, they're not honest enough to, in the end, say that. But for the Pharisees here, believing in Jesus is not an option because they don't like what the repercussions might be. And oftentimes when you and I interact with others, it's not, is Jesus who he said he was? It's not, did he rise from the dead? It's not, did he perform miracles or whatever? It's that, I don't like where this thing might lead. I think in the end, for most of us, most of the time, the issue really gets down to most of us are like the Pharisees, and I include Christians in that category, even if you've accepted Christ, even if you believe the gospel. Most of us are Pharisees in the sense that when we hear something we don't like, we don't want to believe it. If we hear something that might be true but might have a consequence or an impact in our life that we'd rather not see, or believe we would rather just close the door and turn and go the other way because we don't like where that thing might lead us. Uh, creationism's been in the news for years now, but you know Kansas has been at the center of the storm in this because of the conservative Board of Education members and the repercussions in the legislation, et cetera, that, has to, that takes place in Kansas and Kansas schools and, and classroom books. But if you said on some level, <clears throat> How much uh, intelligence does it take to believe that something can't come from nothing? I mean, just as, a, as the most basic philosophical uh, supposition, how much intelligence does it take to believe that something cannot come from nothing? It doesn't take much, does it? But you and I live in a culture and a world in which people would, would, would and do believe that matter is all, that in a sense matter is God because they'd rather believe that something can come from nothing than to believe in a God that they'll have to give an account to. So this, this takes place in all kinds of areas. We, we see it today in the area of evolution and creation. 
in the text here, we see it about who is Jesus? Is he the Messiah? You know, in the end, the Pharisees say, we don't care who he is. We don't care what he's done. We just don't like where he might lead us and what impact that might have on my life. As often as not, the reason that we hear something and say we don't care if it's true or not is because we don't want to believe it's true. We don't like what it's going to mean for our life. And, you know, if you've got health issues, you might not like it if somebody tells you that the steak you like or the dairy products, they're high in cholesterol and you shouldn't eat them. You might just say, no thanks, I don't want to hear it, I don't care, because I want to eat what I want to eat. There'd be a million and one areas in your life in which somebody could say, something's true, in which your response is to close the door and go the other way. And it has nothing to do with whether it's true or not. It has nothing to do with someone could convince you that what they're saying is factual. It just has to do with you don't want to hear it. And as often as not, when you and I are faced with something, when our initial response is to turn and go the other way, it's an issue of the will. We don't believe because we don't want to believe. That's the bottom line. There's something else that's interesting in this passage. Uh, go down a little bit further to uh, in the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Sanhedrin. Look at these uh, guys, these evil, scheming old men. Uh, they claim to represent God on one hand, and at the same time they're plotting to kill the Messiah, the one who's validating himself with signs of power as the Messiah. These are the guys who can quote the law and many of these guys had the Old Testament memorized, so they, weren't, they were sharp guys, and they knew what the Bible of their day said, but they hated the lawgiver. And these little men, in the end, really what they were concerned about was their little place in their little short span of time there in Israel. They weren't concerned with God. In fact, it's interesting, earlier in verse 48, they say, Our place and our nation... They said they were God's representatives, but God's not part of their equation. They have their little piece of turf, their importance in their culture, and they're going to maintain that. That's their goal. You know, you wonder, though, here are these guys. These are the leaders. They lead the nation. They have the power in a limited way under Roman rule. They have the power in Israel, and they're opposed to God and God's Messiah. And the question becomes... Does their opposition change or alter God's plans? Does their evil, unbelieving response, does it hinder what God's about? And of course, the, the answer is, you know, not the slightest. Did they subvert God's will because they opposed his Messiah? And you know, you say in the end, well, no, not at all. In Acts 4, we've looked at this before, but I think it bears repeating. The early church understood that Jesus wasn't a victim and that the evil that was being carried out in John 11 was part of God's will. So the early church, when they were praying in Acts 4, said, Lord, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. This is kind of, in a sense, a conglomeration of all the people groups of the earth. To conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, the Messiah, the Chosen One, they did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. If you just look at the storyline, it looks like Jesus comes in and he loses because the powers, the, the political powers in place, opposed him and killed him. The early church looked back and said, well, no, not at all. 
it was what God had decided would happen. That's exactly what happened. Now, it doesn't mean that when they oppose Christ, it doesn't mean that when they choose not to believe, it doesn't mean that when they murder the Messiah, it doesn't mean that they're not really responsible for their actions and their attitudes. They really are. But that in God's sovereignty, he incorporated the evil and the opposition of man and these religious leaders as part of his plan for redemption. So that on one hand, if you're the disciple at the time and you see the religious powerful group opposing your Messiah, it looks like you're losing. But in fact, it's, it's the opposite because God has already sovereignly decided to use their opposition to further his plan of redemption. <clears throat> so the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin's opposition, unbelief, it doesn't thwart God's purpose, not a bit. If you look later in Acts 8 at verse 1, Remember Acts 7 is Stephen's been pulled in. He's the church's first martyr. And he stands before this same group, the same group that, that was responsible, as we look at it, for Jesus' crucifixion. Same group Stephen stands before. He makes his defense and he says, you guys are always resisting the Holy Spirit. And this group does the same thing to Stephen that they did to Jesus. They kill him. They had Jesus killed through the Romans. In Stephen's case, they drag him outside the city and they stone him to death. And at, at Acts 8, verse 1, it says, On that day a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Now, the Jewish leadership, why are they stoning Stephen? And why are they persecuting this Christian sect? And remember, this is just a sect within Judaism at this point. Why are they doing this? Because they want to squash it. They want to get rid of it. Have you guys ever taken mercury? As a kid, I was fascinated when the little thermometer would break. You know, you take that mercury and you put your thumb on it or something. What does it do? You try and break it, spread it out, and it just, uh, even if you get it to split, it splits into little pieces that join back together. Uh, I suppose it's surface tension, Rachel. And I don't know how the chemistry works. But you try to get it to separate from itself, and it won't quite work. It keeps its attraction for each other. It keeps coming back together. The Jews were trying to stamp out Christianity, so they persecuted it. What was the effect? The effect was the apostles kind of went underground for a while in Jerusalem, but what did the others do? They spread. And when they spread, verse 4 says, they preached the word wherever they went. Now, if you remember, Matthew 28, Jesus said that this group, this little group, was commissioned to go into all the world and make disciples. These guys were a little tardy on that assignment. This We don't know how many years later this is. This could be eight to ten years later, literally. It's not the next month, and it's not even the next year. We're not sure of the time frame, but this could be eight to ten years later. And guess where they're at? They're still in Jerusalem. They haven't gone to the uttermost parts of the earth. They haven't made disciples of any nation. They haven't gone to their neighbors next door in Samaria. So the persecution happens, and the folks that left preached the word wherever they went. And you know, if you continue reading in Acts 8, that the Samaritans embraced the gospel. And then the apostles go up, and they pray, and they receive the Holy Spirit. So the Jewish Christians now get it. The Samaritans are Christians just like they are. And that leads to Acts 10, when the Gentiles are brought in. The Jewish leaders were trying to stamp out this new Jude uh, Jewish sect. 
but the result of it was that they actually furthered the gospel exactly as Jesus said was supposed to have happened anyway. In fact, if you read in Acts 1 also, you're to be my, you're my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. They hadn't complied with it. And they probably weren't sure what that was supposed to look like anyway. So God takes the hateful opposition of the Jewish leaders, same thing that Jesus faced, same thing Stephen faced, and he uses it to get his people where he wanted them anyway. And the gospel is spread. If you read Paul in Philippians 1, remember Paul's whole life, his whole mission is to go from one nation to another where they'd never heard the gospel and talk to them about Christ. That was his life's mission and mandate. And what happens to him? You remember in Jerusalem, he's faced with Jewish opposition. They have him arrested. And Paul languishes in prison for a number of years, not once, but probably twice. So here's this guy whose mission is to travel to new places and proclaim the gospel, and he's been confined to a jail cell. So it looks like the Jewish authorities have won. In other words, if God's will for Paul's life is to spread the gospel to people who have never heard before, and we get him stuck in prison, it looks like we win. And you find out, well, gosh, not quite. Philippians 1, Paul says, My circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. My imprisonment has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. Most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Same thought with Paul. We'll get him in prison, we'll take care of him, and we'll stop this nonsense. And Paul's in prison, and because of that, people who weren't sharing the gospel before begin sharing the gospel. And also, by the way, we have Paul's prison epistles written during the same time. So it looked like this opposition was squelching or was killing God's plan, and you find out, no, God's flipped that on its head. It's not killing God's plan at all. God's sovereignly using even that kind of opposition to further his plans. Can wicked men, can evil plans, can betrayal, persecution, loss, death, suffering prevent God from accomplishing his will in your life or mine? And the answer is not a bit. Do you guys remember the end of the Matrix movies, the third one? I forget what the title is. But you remember Neo in that movie is a Christ figure. And in this alternate world in which computers and machines have taken over humanity and humans are, are Duracell batteries to run the machinery and the computers of the machine age, Neo, the new man, is this Christ figure. And within this alternative world in which the computers have created that humans live in only in their mind, uh, Agent Smith has become a virus run amok. And Agent Smith is going to take over, actually to the detriment of both the human batteries and the machines. Agent Smith, this virus, is going to wipe them all out. And so at the end of the movie, Neo, the new man, conspires, as it were, with the machines, who, if you remember the scene, if you've seen it, the machines, uh, like a school of fish, swarm together to make a face that looks like an old man. This patriarchal figure joins with this new man-son figure, and they figure out this way in which they're going to allow Agent Smith to win. And when he wins, he'll lose. So there's a fight scene at the end of the movie in which Neo is defeated by Agent Smith. And Agent Smith 
this virus takes over Neo, and he thinks he's one, and it looks like he's one, but no, it hasn't, because Neo becomes sort of a virus for Agent Smith's virus, and, and it's in Neo's death that Agent Smith, the virus that's going to wipe everything out, is defeated. What looked like loss is actually part of the victory that was intended. Or do you remember the Greeks and the Trojan horse? Remember the Iliad? Uh, Helen of Troy, you know, the wife of the king in Greece taken to Troy, and the Greeks respond, they send the armies, but they can't defeat those walls of Troy. So they can't win. So what do they do? They act like they're defeated, and they leave the horse, the Trojan horse, with their men inside. So what do the people of Troy do? They think they've won. They think they've defeated those nasty little Greeks with their tall walls. And so they go out and they pull that horse in. And of course, they don't know that that horse is part of the Greek plan to win. It looks like the Greeks lost. Oh, no, they've actually won in the end. What looked like defeat actually turned into victory. You know, in Romans 8, a passage we do well to remember, I think more often, Paul says, if God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for me, who can be against me? In other words, if the power of the universe is on my side, what in the world could I fear or should I fear? And then in Romans 8, verse 37, he says, In all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. We are, another Bible translation says, we are more than conquerors. So when bad things happen to you, when friends disappoint you big time, when enemies inflict real pain, real loss, real suffering, remind yourself that in God's hands what was meant to harm you is actually turned upside down to accomplish what God's will is in your life and mine. In the end, it can't harm you. We're more than conquerors. I don't say there's not real suffering. I don't say there's not real loss. I don't say there's not real disappointment. But the bigger picture is that out of those apparent defeats, God still brings victory. The last thing I want to notice in this passage, and to me the funniest, funny, I don't know, it doesn't sound funny in the text, but verse 50, uh, you don't realize, the high priest says, it's better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. Remember who's saying this, this is a wicked guy. This is the high priest, God's representative, crucifying God's Messiah. But what does verse 51 say? He didn't say this on his own initiative, but as a high priest, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. The high priest filled with with evil and wickedness towards Jesus, it says prophesied. That means he's speaking by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This wicked, evil little guy speaking by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. As far as he's concerned, he's just speaking the frustration and evil malice he has in his heart. God, however, says, I'm going to take that evil and that malice and I'm going to speak through it to say that Jesus, my son, is dying as a substitutionary death, not only for the Jewish nation, but for folks, most of us, Gentiles, Gentiles like you and I. He speaks through this guy who's totally opposed to him and God still speaks through him and says the evil words that come out of his mouth are mine. He prophesied, he spoke as the Holy Spirit moved him to speak. Again, from his perspective, it's his will, it's his thoughts, it's his emotions. From God's perspective, it's God's words. And this is why I think it's funny. Um, You know, 
from his perspective, he's getting things his way. And from God's perspective, God's turning that thing upside down, so it's actually quite the opposite. And, you know, in your life and mine, there will be times in which somebody might say something to you, and they might be really trying to hurt you. And if you really thought that no matter what they said, God was in charge, God was in control, and he was going to use even the the nasty things they said for your benefit, you could laugh about it. It'd be easier to take. You remember the Old Testament, Numbers 22 to 24, the story of Balaam? Balaam was a prophet. And the scripture, if you just read the story, doesn't sound too bad as far as uh, Balaam goes, but he was an evil prophet. He was a wicked prophet. He was not a Jew. He was a pagan. God really did speak through him, though. And he lived during the Exodus period, which Israel's coming around. They've spent their 40 years in the wilderness, and they're getting ready to come into the promised land. So they've got to come around the south part of the Dead Sea, up the east side of the Jordan. They've got to pass through King Balak's land. King Balak says, I I don't want two or three million people coming through my land. You stay there. But he knows that the Jews have had victory. God's delivered them from these other nations already. So he sends for his pal Balaam. And he says, come and curse this nation. Keep them out of my place. Curse them for me. So Balaam... Initially, God says, don't go, and Balaam wants to. Balaam wants the reward and the riches that Balak will give him, so Balaam goes. The trouble is, each time he tries to open his mouth to curse Israel, God puts these words in his mouth of blessing, prophetic words, true words from God of blessing. In fact, one is messianic, talks about the star that would arise, that's Jesus, that's a messianic prophecy, from the evil-hearted words of Balaam. God spoke through Balaam. And if you back up in the story just a little bit, Balaam gets on his little donkey and he's headed out to curse Israel. And it's it's one of the funnier or more memorable Old Testament stories too because this angel that Balaam can't see is standing in front of the way Balaam's riding, but the donkey can see him. And so the donkey, he refuses to go forward and he sits down and Balaam keeps getting mad at him. He's whacking him and he's threatening to kill the donkey until finally the donkey opens his mouth and speaks and says, I'm avoiding the death in front of you. I'm saving your life. The donkey speaks. The donkey speaks. So here in Balaam, you've got God speaks through the evil prophet and God speaks through a donkey. And you know, when I think about that in John 11, and God speaks through an evil high priest. God speaks his words, his truth, through an evil prophet, a donkey, a dumb donkey, otherwise dumb donkey, and an evil priest. And this just makes me think this. If God can speak through those kinds of characters, you know there's a good chance that he might speak to you through your spouse. Or, yeah, or through your parents. He might speak to you through your friends and he might speak to you through your enemies. And I just suggest this, that when someone says something to you that you don't like, that instead of just writing it off initially because you don't want to hear it, back to the first point we were talking about, that you remind yourself God spoke through a wicked priest, spoke through a wicked prophet, spoke through a dumb donkey. There's a chance that he's speaking through my spouse through my child, through my parent, through my friend, even through my enemy. Winston Churchill, one of my favorite guys in history, said, 
he relied on the criticism of his enemies, of his political enemies. And, and think of it like this. Sometimes your enemies are willing to say things that are true that no one else is because they don't like you, so they don't care if they offend you. And even if someone who doesn't like you says something that sounds insulting, I would just encourage you to, to not write it off immediately and to just ask yourself before God this question, Lord, is there anything that they're saying that I need to be aware of? Is there any element of truth that you want to say to me through this person who's, they're saying things to slam me and to hurt me, but do you have your purpose in anything that's being said? Because sometimes God will. I was, uh, years ago, I was in a situation in which I had to confront an individual, and I don't know why, but I've had to do this many, many times, and uh, I feel like I've been given the dirty stick sometimes, but that's the way it is. But I was confronting this individual, and uh, this person said something back to me to accuse me of something. And, you know, I thought at the time, I said, well, I'll be glad to talk about that later, but first let's, let's deal with the issue at hand, which is this. But, you know, when I left the meeting, I, seriously, I thought, Lord, um, is that true? Do I, you know, is that me? He was trying to divert attention from the issue and trying to kind of put a dagger in Mike's side. But I had to walk away and say, Lord, um, is that true? Is what he said true? And do I need to be aware? Are you trying to say something to me? So I think especially if it's your family member or your friends, boy, especially be willing to listen. But even if it's your enemy, somebody that you know doesn't like you, it still doesn't mean that God won't speak through them to tell you something that you need to know. And here again in John 11, God is prophesying through the malice of the high priest his words and his message. So the donkeys and the wicked priests and the wicked prophets, you know, there's a chance that somebody around you is saying something that you don't like and don't want to hear might be exactly what God wants you to hear and what God wants you to know. So, wrapping up, when you hear something that you don't want to hear, when you hear something that might be true, but you're afraid, or you don't like where it might lead, stop long enough to say, Lord, I want to submit my will to you. Don't choose to believe something is not true, or not for you, not intended for you, because you're afraid of where it might go. Because remember, God can take what looks to you like utter defeat, death, and God can flip it on its head and bring life. So don't, don't assume that something that looks bad to you is in God's hands bad, because he can take even death in Lazarus' case, or Jesus' case, or persecution in the case of the church, and flip that on, on its head to accomplish his purpose and his will. And remember, too, that, that is the thing. That's the encouraging thing for me. Because God's sovereign, he knows all things, and he has all power, you know that nothing that happens in your life is chance. Everything that occurs in your life passes through God's control. So if you know that, and if you know based on Romans 8 that God promises to bless you, even from things that would otherwise be difficult or painful, you can say for any or anything that enters your life, Lord, thanks that even though there's real pain, real suffering, real loss, thanks that in your hand this thing gets turned on its head and is part of your plan to accomplish your good in my life. 
And then the last thing is, be willing to hear words of truth from the unlikeliest of places or people. Be willing to suspend judgment or disbelief long enough to say, Lord, is this something I need to hear? Is this truth that you've set out for me? Even though it's coming from a realm or a person or a place, I wouldn't otherwise want to listen to. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, I am thrilled that we belong to a God who can take even a defeat and turn it into victory. And Lord, that seems to be your specialty that when it looks like things are going a certain way in your hands, they're, they're probably going the opposite. Lord, thanks that you can take the evil intended by people and wicked words and turn them on their heads to speak words of solemn truth. And Lord, I'm just challenged again that um, I need to submit my will to you. I need to be willing to lay my life, my priorities, my desires, my defenses. I need to be willing to lay those at your feet and say, Lord, I'm yours. Show me what to make of this. Lord, I pray for all of us that we would be slow to conclude that something isn't from you or isn't true. Lord, help us when we hear something that challenges us or someone says something that we know is meant to harm us. Lord, I pray that we would submit that to you and ask you what to make of it. Thanks for a passage that reminds us that you are using all things to accomplish your purposes both in the world, Lord, and at our homes and in our lives as well. In Jesus' name, amen.